transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the American desert. We come to you from Joshua Tree, miles of scattered mobile homes, auto graveyards, and strange scenes behind the Circle K, gateway community to Joshua Tree National Park where tourists disappear. The Mojave Desert has again claimed the lives of hikers, sort of. You'll recall that back in late July, that hellish July in the middle of the hottest California summer in history, two Orange County visitors vanished after a simple day hike near their Airbnb in South Joshua Tree. Rachel Nguyen, age 20, and her ex-boyfriend, Joseph Orbeso, 21, were found dead in the National Park on October 15, months after their July 28th disappearance, both killed by Orbeso's handgun. He was a security guard. That was his work. His friends told the paper in Orange County that he was a survivalist, that he always carried knives. He scoped out the high desert a week before he brought his ex-girlfriend there for her birthday. They were in the part of the park that borders the town of Joshua Tree, the Panorama Heights neighborhood. It's a nice place. You see people walking their dogs and riding their bicycles around there every day, usually in the cooler morning or evening in the summertime. This guy brought a loaded handgun. The couple was found in an embrace with their shorts pulled down, according to the sheriff's department. I wonder who did the embracing. Probably the ex-boyfriend who murdered his ex-girlfriend in the desert, considering that he killed her first before turning the gun on himself. The local sheriff's department said this to the press. There is no indication that he wanted to harm her, that there was any plan for something like this. Well, that's the dumbest damn thing I've ever heard, and I used to cover the police beat full time. He was her ex-boyfriend. The ex-boyfriend of a beautiful girl who was likely going somewhere in life. Somewhere that probably did not include a security guard and knife fanatic and gun nut. He got put in the friend zone. He scoped out Joshua Tree the week before by public transportation, which is the guaranteed way to be invisible in a place like the high desert. He said, let's go take a day hike in the nice national park by our Airbnb. They got high. He brought a loaded handgun. Normal day out. And once they were on the north end of the Maze Trail, which seems like you're in a very remote location until you see the community college and the highway traffic down the hill, well, then he shot her dead, crawled on top of her, and shot himself. No harm intended. Just another day hike gone wrong. This county is something else. 
The whole economy is driven by tourists coming to the wild desert, the national parks, and the national monuments. And the absolute last thing the sheriff's department understands or cares about is the desert that is the entire driver of the economy. Both the killer and the victim were tourists. Tourists in the national park. If I ran the Department of the Interior instead of the current sleazebag zooming around by private jet to give your public lands to his dear friends at the oil and gas companies, crimes inside a national park or monument or wilderness would be exclusively the domain of a national park investigative service. It would explore not only murders, but all crimes involving the complex ecosystems and climates of these parks and protected lands. They would be the top investigative force in all the wild places, skilled in the comprehension and investigation of crimes of the physical and metaphysical realms. Expert investigators of the paranormal, trained clergy and accredited scientists astronomers, biologists, masters of criminal intent and analysis, expert marksmen, true survivalists, intent on the survival of the Earth and its species, including but not limited to humanity. Why they can solve a crime before they ever find the bodies, although they will find the bodies and find them quick. They can reunite a lost dog with its family and stop traffic on Park Boulevard so the Bighorn can safely cross over to Barker Dan in the morning. They can shoot an illegal drone out of the sky at a thousand meters and then write a citation for the bozos who thought a whining, buzzing piece of flying garbage from Amazon is the kind of thing you bring to America's national parks. They can administer last rites for every major religion and provide philosophical and theological solace to the survivors. A warrior monk society of the finest and highest moral fiber. Are you sitting around waiting for a mission in life? Feeling helpless as you're tossed and turned by events? Helplessly reacting to the deeds of the evildoers instead of taking action to put our civilization back on course? Well, then you might have what it takes to join us. Join us in this great mission to restore morality and human decency to our sickly species to drive the evil ones and the vile opportunists from the Agora, the public realm to aid the rapid transmutation and transformation of our world from a fossil-fuel-dependent, weather-wrecking nightmare of never-ending burning summer and fire and destruction and pain and boredom. Join us in the salvation of our home planet and the salvation of humanity. We'll get those sleazebags yet, and we'll put them in the pit of despair. If you'd like to inquire about this mission or the film rights, drop us a line, radio at desertoracle.com. The 20th century telephone booth is an iconic place of mythological memory. 
in the great cities where the telephone booth first appeared. They were first a symbol of public security in the urban jungle. First in Albany, New York in 1877, next in Chicago and London. Secure booths to contact the police, the fire department, the ambulance service. In Chicago, the first boxes were limited to use by police with keys, but there were switches that anyone could activate to alert the authorities to various emergencies, forgery and theft, accidents and fires, drunkards and murderers. The public payphone within a tiny building, the original tiny house, was a common sight in cities around the world by the early 20th century. And now came a second purpose and identity, a momentarily private and anonymous space within the teeming hordes of urban humanity. The telephone booth was the office of the pimp and the prostitute, the neighborhood bookie and the corner drug dealer. It was the time-traveling home of Doctor Who and the changing room where a mild-mannered Clark Kent stripped off his gray business suit to reveal the Superman. In the days before the mobile phone was common, you might see a correspondent struggling to force a pair of rubber attachments over the greasy phone headset in order to slowly transmit a news update from an old, tandy computer. In a desolate place outside a lonely gas station on a dark and lonesome desert road, that electric light within a glass-windowed box provided a weird mix of security and exposure. From the outside, a phone booth beckons you with the promise of safety from whatever's out there, whatever's after you. From within, that fluorescent tube of sickly white light reflecting... On the grimy, scratched-up glass and the filthy public telephone could fill you with dread. Because now you could not see anything out there. Now you're trapped. As the phone booths disappeared from America in the 1990s, first replaced with useless enclosures that enclosed neither the phone nor the human user and eventually removed altogether as the long-distance profits vanished with the arrival of cell phone national calling plans. The phone booth began to mean something else, like mailboxes and normal park benches, reminders of a lost society that wasn't 100% at war with our humanity. As the bad people took an ever-increasing share of the nation's wealth, as millions of people faced the monthly possibility of losing their shelter, as libraries were shuttered and you eventually could not even hail a cab without a hundred-dollar-a-month cell phone and a credit card, the phone booth became romantic and nostalgic in that sad way that eats at your soul. The new world may turn out to be good after all. The earthly paradise may yet be recovered and made anew, but it will be a long, unpleasant slog through the current dystopia. I first learned of an Arizona character called the Deuce of Clubs in the year or so before the turn of the century when I found his charmingly insane website, deuceofclubs.com. 
of the many pursuits explored in this strange collection of web pages, the biggest draw for me was this person's love affair with a phone booth in one of my favorite places on the planet, the wild and open lands within Mojave National Preserve. This same character, now passing himself off as Duck Daniels, has written many of your favorite pieces within the pages of Desert Oracle, the pocket-sized field guide to the mysterious American desert. Doc Daniels joins us now by telephone from his desert hideout in Arizona. Spontaneous flying conversation was more spontaneous than planned because I don't really know what we're uh, what we're doing here, but. And I'm walking the dog while I'm using one crutch. You're on a crutch. Yes. Yes. I'm sorry to bother you in this time of personal trouble and also in your... Not at all. Your dog walk. What? You're, you're on a crutch? I am on a crutch. So I have a phone and I have a crutch and I have a dog. What kind of weather are you having on this nice, cool fall evening? Beautiful. It's about 73 degrees. Nice, cool. We got the moon up in the sky. It's gorgeous. You are going to be taking part in our November 16th Desert Oracle Radio Live event at the Ace Hotel in Palm Springs. And you are bringing a Mojave phone booth, but as I understand it, it's not the Mojave <laughs> phone booth. Please explain. You have expressed it correctly, sir. The Mojave phone booth, unfortunately was taken to an undisclosed location and destroyed by the government. This phone booth is a prop phone booth that was used in a movie called Mojave Phone Booth. And it's very cleverly constructed. It holds together, uh, comes apart and, and goes together real easily because it's uh, constructed with door hinges, just regular door hinges. Common door hinges for a feature film. Common door hinges. This is movie magic. It's an independent film. A portable phone booth. It's a portable phone booth. This, you never know where it might pop up. You don't see a Mojave phone booth inside a entertainment hall at a hotel every day. Not every day. In fact, not to my knowledge ever. But it will be on the 16th of November. I hear that you are putting together a book about your experiences with the Mojave phone booth. It is true. It is called Adventures with the Mojave Phone Booth. I've been putting it together for way too long. Uh, it's about to happen. I'm waiting out a little bit of static here. It's pretty appropriate because uh, when you were on the actual Mojave phone booth, uh, the line was always uh, crackling with weird types of static. The book actually is finished. It's, I'm just doing logistical work now, trying to get the thing uh, printed out. Where can the audience find more information about this book? Adventures with the Mojave Phone Booth by Doc Daniels. They can go to mojavephoneboothbook.com. That's probably the best way to do it. It is a romantic and comic tale of adventure and discovery and other such things. How would you explain the book in a sentence or two? Well, I, re I remember there was a summation of it that I thought was pretty good when it first started happening. Uh, it was something like, boy meets phone, boy loves phone, phone is destroyed by government.
We are long overdue for a Desert Oracle radio mailbag. Shannon Brown writes, Mr. Lane, I spent many nights camping in the desert on the perimeter of Edwards Air Force Base as a kid and still have strong recollections of those eerie howls, those unexplained lights, and the late-night hikes that led to the discovery of mysterious concrete plugs embedded in the desert floor, seemingly abandoned antenna arrays, and old gunnery range remnants. Those were great days to have access to the South Track Boy Scout camp adjacent to the old rocket sled test site. The 1990 Rocket Lab accident that you mentioned was the result of a rocket motor being accidentally dropped by a crane. This was one of several incidents that afflicted the Titan IV heavy launch program, if memory serves. There was a Titan IV booster motor explosion in 1991 and a series of other mishaps that prompted Phillips Laboratory employees at the Rocket Lab site to print and distribute little blue calling cards featuring the outline of the Titan IV, the Martin Marietta Morale Booster. I've got one around here somewhere. Unrelated, but nonetheless worth a mention, is the curious story of Walking George Swain, a Boron resident who was a regular in primary and secondary school classrooms in the area. He was brought in by science teachers to talk about desert conservation, desert wildlife, and limiting one's impact on the land. I have only vague memories of his presentations, but the themes certainly struck a chord. If you haven't heard of him, there's quite a bit on the internet about his eccentric life. He strikes me as the kind of guy who'd be a good fit for a profile on the broadcast. I eagerly look forward to the next installment, and I can't wait for the next print issue. Shannon Brown Well, walking George was the kind of character you hoped to meet in the desert, the kind of pleasant oddball you wish you had in your desert community. Maybe in exchange for a couple hundred of the regular people, the whiners and the boars. A walking George Swain was something else altogether. The Los Angeles Daily News, in an obituary for Swain, who died at the age of 80 on April 25 of the year 2000, describes him as a man who traveled the West in search of operas and in support of environmental causes who refused to clutter his life with a home or a car. Born in 1919 in Los Angeles, George Swain served in World War II and then had a brief education at Stanford in chemistry. And it was enough. He began work at the U.S. Borax plant in Boron on the fourth day of the fourth month of 1944. He retired in 1986 and for many years lived in a miner's cabin provided by U.S. Borax. The rest of the time, he camped in the desert. He holed up in abandoned miner's shacks in the area and he served as a house sitter for his friends. 
and occasionally he stayed at the Boron Motel. And he shaved and he showered at the mine. It was a good life, a simple life. George greatly admired John Muir and especially loved the operas of Wagner. Desert conservation was his mission in life, his true love. A talented musician, he joined the local Baptist church because he was invited to use the piano and organ there. And in time, he became the pianist and the organist at both the First Baptist Church and St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Boron. The theological differences were unimportant as he was an atheist. You'll find in life that the most moral and decent humans do not need to practice a religion, although they generally enjoy the peace and serenity of temples and churches and They have a deep need for the quiet beauty of wild nature. As an admirer of John Muir, George valued his membership in the John Muir Memorial Association, and he made a point of never missing the annual dinner over his 25 years of membership. He always performed classical and opera pieces when visiting the Tuolumne Meadows Lodge up Tioga Pass, and whenever he traveled by vehicle, he preferred that vehicle be a train. He was a romantic soul, and romantic souls always loved the trains. Now about the nickname he earned, Walking George, it will not surprise you to learn that George Swain was a walking man, a lifelong walker, whether across the deserts or up and down the Sierra Nevada. He'd walk to Death Valley, for a weekend stroll, a hundred miles. Boron's annual festival, the 20 Mule Team Days, always has a big parade, including the famous 20 Mule Team Borax wagons that once ran from Death Valley to the Western Mojave. Well, Walking George was also in that parade every year, and his parading style consisted of George Swain walking the parade route and greeting his neighbors and friends along the way. If you want to see a pair of George Swain's size 14 hiking boots, stop over at the 20 Mule Team Museum in Boron. They've got a pair of his weathered old boots on display. George Swain was a legend for much of his adult life. He was on national TV shows and he was featured in the newspapers. In a 1978 profile by the Los Angeles Times... The reporter describes George with a kind of longing, a longing for a life that few of us have considered, a life that sounds so good in theory, and yet what do we do with our time that's any better? I know I've never done anything better than walking miles of desert hills with no particular destination. But if I heard somebody playing Wagner on a piano from an empty church on a desert byway, I'd sure head in that direction. Just to listen through the doorway for a bit.
The musical sounds you were hearing at the moment come from an artist here in Joshua Tree who goes by the name Red Blue Black Silver, and you can hear more at redblueblacksilver.com. Our theme music is by Pierre Langer, and you can find links to the various musical backgrounds and their creators at our own website, desertoracle.com. Desert Oracle Radio is broadcast on KCDZ 107.7 FM, Fridays, 10 p.m. There is nothing like listening to the program on the FM radio. It will give you chills. Just knowing all these other high desert people are listening to the broadcast along with you in the night... Remember to get your free reserved seating for our November 16 live program, 7 p.m. a Thursday night at the Ace Hotel, Palm Springs. We've got Jeremy Kenyon Lockyer Corbell, he of the UFO documentaries, including the new Patient 17, out now on iTunes, is a weird damn thing. You should see it. Doc Daniels of Mojave Phone Booth Infamy will be there, along with area businessman Brendan Mays and other special surprises. Eventbrite, B-R-I-T-E, misspelled like everything on the internet, or from our website, desertoracle.com, spelled correctly. For those of you coming from out of town, use Desert Oracle as your discount code for 10% off your lodging at the Ace Hotel and Swim Club. Desert Oracle Campfire Stories, our original and ongoing monthly event at the Ace Hotel, comes again on Thursday, November 2nd, next week, once again, 7 p.m., around the fire ring, free and open to all. We had a very fine time at the October 7 event, and I want to thank all of you good people for coming from all over. Landers, Yucca Valley, Oceanside, Los Angeles, Blue Diamond in Nevada, even Chicago. Around and across the Mojave, from Amboy to Zizek's, and across the great Mojave wilderness, this has been Desert Oracle Radio. If you have a good community radio station in your desert town and you want to hear our program on that station, do us a favor and let them know, let us know, and we shall endeavor to make it happen. Meanwhile, get the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and tune in and the rest. Thanks again for listening, and good night from the voice of the desert.